0: August the 6th, 1965. It was a landmark day in American history. Following the long and arduous work of the Civil Rights Movement, Congress passed the Voting Rights Act, prohibiting racial discrimination in American elections. Just a few months later, in 1966, Myers Park Baptist Church approved a landmark resolution of its own, to fully welcome into our membership all races of people using the phrase, open to all and closed to none, for the very first time. 1966. It was an extraordinary moment in the history of our church in the history of the Myers Park neighborhood and the city of Charlotte. During the era of Jim Crow segregation, for the first 23 years of our history, our forebears struggled to differentiate themselves from the exclusive theology of the American caste system. Yet when we look around the beautiful diversity of our community today, it's hard to believe there ever was a time when the church was not fully open to all. The struggle of our forebearers is not surprising. It's not surprising when we come to understand the true history of our country. Isabel Wilkerson, who spoke at Queens this past Thursday evening, claims that our nation is like an old house built on a faulty foundation or a patient with a pre-existing condition. So when the racial ideology of the American caste system rears its ugly head, we should never be surprised as Americans. 23 years of struggle is not surprising. What is surprising is that our forebearers changed course. In 1966, they declared once and for all that we would be open to all, And it's impossible to overstate the significance of this or the courage and bravery that was required to make that declaration, a declaration of that magnitude in a segregated southern city, in a neighborhood with racially restrictive covenants and deeds, the power of their extraordinary decision to be fully open to all races set our church on a course of inclusivity that has profoundly shaped our identity and our mission in the world. The resolution of 66 was just the beginning. We established an inner-city ministry in Piedmont Courts neighborhood to address racial disparities in housing. Our third senior minister, Carlisle and chair of deacons, Ed Burnside, partnered with black leaders in Charlotte to desegregate restaurants and businesses. Deacon Betty Jo Hamrick and the women of the church responded to the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham that killed four little girls by holding a meeting at the church where they advocated ardently for desegregation and organized interracial groups that met in members' homes for dinner. In 1971, our fourth senior minister, Gene Owens, was one of only two clergy in the city to voice his support for forced busing for school integration and to lend a hand to lawyers working to overcome racial disparities in education. And since the 70s, we continued over the years to draw the circle wider And wider, to expand our inclusivity as a people on a journey of faith by welcoming and embracing the first women deacons and women clergy, by welcoming and embracing a Jewish congregation to worship in what is now Shalom Hall, by welcoming and embracing people of all religious and denominational and faith backgrounds, including atheists and agnostics. From the invitation of Reverend Carter Hayward to the tireless work of Fran Kerr and many others, we welcomed and embraced people of all sexual orientations and gender identities. We also began to welcome and embrace people of all citizenships and nationalities, including undocumented immigrants. And finally, we returned many years later to the unfinished business of racial justice laid out by our forebears in 66 and welcomed and embraced the first people of color as deacons and ministers in the history of our church. For 80 years, we've been a people possessed by the dream of a church that is an ever-widening circle of inclusion, never static or stagnant, but a living and dynamic reality, constantly expanding to embrace more and more people over time, especially those that have been traditionally marginalized or excluded by American religion. Today we come in this stewardship season with a new question, a question for a new generation of members at Myers Park Baptist Church. The question is, what's next? What's next for our church? Where is the Spirit calling us to go now? Who is the Spirit calling us to be today at this particular moment for such a time as this? Last week, Reverend Dr. K. Monet reminded us that even though we're living in the wilderness of a network age, God calls us to go into the wilderness to build a highway of love and justice and peace and beloved community for all people. And somebody told me afterwards when they heard her sermon, We've already started. We've already started leveling the ground and making the rough places plain. We do live in a wilderness age, a time when there are wars and rumors of war, in an age of church scandal and church decline, political division, a mass shooting every day, white Christian nationalism on the rise. Some commentators, if you listen to them long enough, believe the doomsday clock is at 11.59. It's funny, our clock in the church robing room back here stopped right on eleven fifty nine. That's an, an ominous is it 11 59 they say it's about to be midnight for America that it's midnight for the church I was planning to talk with you today about the subject midnight for the church and my sermon title in your order of worship is supposed to have a question mark at the end What a difference punctuation can make. It's a question. It's not a statement. It's a question mark. It's not an imperative. Is it midnight for the church? Is it? Is it midnight for the church in America? What do you think? Just this week, I heard that there's a rumor. Some folks believe that it's midnight for Myers Park Baptist Church. And that was certainly news to me. But as I reflected on the parable of the bridesmaids and the theme of stewardship and the season that we're in, I've come to think that we might be asking the wrong question. The question is not, is it midnight for the church? Or even, what time is it for the church? Perhaps the real question is, when did the church become afraid of the dark? When did we become a people who are afraid of a little midnight? Are we afraid of the dark? Are we afraid of midnight? Are we people who are afraid of the unknown? Halloween is a perfect time for us to face our fears of the dark. The only thing scarier than Halloween is a church stewardship campaign. (laughs) Even if we admit that we're afraid of the dark, it's important for us to know and to remember God is not. As the biblical witness reveals, powerful and transformative events take place at midnight. And I'm not talking about werewolves shape-shifting in the light of the moon. God liberated the people from the empire of Egypt at midnight. The kinsman, Redeemer, Boaz, discovered Ruth lying at his feet at midnight. The psalmist states that they rose to sing praises for God's justice and righteousness at midnight. The spirit of God broke Paul and Silas out of jail when they were singing hymns at midnight. We don't need to be afraid of midnight. As Barbara Brown Taylor writes, whether it is seed in the ground, a baby in the womb, Jesus in the tomb, or disciples huddled in an upper room, new life always starts in the dark. Listen to that again, whether it is seed in the ground, a baby in the womb, Jesus in the tomb, or disciples huddled in an upper room, new life begins in the dark. Midnight's the time when things happen. We need the dark. And so perhaps, maybe, the church must travel through the midnight to become the new creation that God is calling us to be. The only reason to be afraid of the dark or midnight or the unknown is if we're not prepared for it, or if we don't have the resources that we need to thrive in the midnight hour. The parable of the young women, the bridesmaids, is a story about the kind of preparation and attentiveness and watchfulness and vigilance we need to be a follower of Jesus. But there's also a hidden message in the common everyday element that some of the bridesmaids carried with them, the oil. Oil is a powerful symbol in the Bible, extremely important in Middle Eastern culture. It is an element commonly used in food, medicine, and religious ritual. But many don't know that in the Greek language, the word for oil is almost the exact same as the word for mercy. It's just a few letters off. In fact, some scholars believe that olive trees and olive oil, which are very old, were named after the word mercy because the trees give oil so abundantly. Olive trees grow in Palestine. These groves were some of the most glorious and abundant resources, sources of provision for people's daily lives, which came to symbolize God's enduring mercy and abundance and generosity. In our culture today, though, the word mercy has become a rather nebulous word. At best, we use mercy as a symbol or synonym for grace or forgiveness. But in Second Temple Judaism, at the time of Jesus, the word mercy had come to be defined quite specifically as giving alms to the poor, what we might call charity or generosity So when Jesus told the parable of the bridesmaids, his audience, they would have known the similarities between the word oil and mercy. They would have known what mercy had come to be defined as. And they would have known Jesus wasn't just talking about preparation or vigilance, that he was teaching, that the difference between the wise and the foolish young women was that the wise bridesmaids carried the oil of mercy and generosity with them. But the foolish bridesmaids did not and they ran out of gas. Their generosity had all dried up. And Jesus was saying to his audience that we need generosity as a people of faith to light our way on this journey through the dark, during the midnight hour, into the unknown. Not only that, but according to Jesus, we need generosity to make our way from the midnight hour to the wedding banquet. Because our church, our community, our lives are meant to be more like a feast. a party, a bash, a festival, a banquet with so many people filled with love and joy, a banquet of food and drink, of singing and dancing. But that's only possible with the oil of generosity. When the foolish blindsmaids realized that they had no oil, They ran off to the dealers to try and buy some for themselves, but they didn't have enough time. They missed the party. They missed the wedding banquet. They found out the hard way that true generosity, like true relationships, cannot be bought or sold. We live in the most transactional era of human history. Our economic system has formed each of us in different ways, into buyers and sellers, consumers and producers and providers, which has a tendency to make every single human encounter and relationship in our society and in our lives into a transaction. You give me this, I give you this. Including our faith, our relationship with God, and the church. Anthropologists have shown that across human cultures, whenever a relationship becomes purely transactional or strictly contingent, giving stops. Generosity ceases. Ethnographers studying diverse cultures have noted that attempts to strictly balance out exchanges are tantamount to ending relationships, not improving them. This isn't just true for people. Zoologists explain that non-human primates operate in a more, when they, when they operate in a more contingent manner with partners, it's the ones that they're less bonded to, that their relationship is the weakest with. Following transactional norms is a sign of a strictly contingent relationship, which leads to the absence of sharing or helping And basically, all these scholars and scientists are trying to show us that transactional behavior kills relationships because it kills our generosity. Sadly, the most popular form of Christianity in the world today is a transactional Christianity, the prosperity gospel, a faith perfectly designed for our economic system, which insists that the more faith we have, the more that God will bless us. With health and wealth, it's a quid pro quo connection with the divine. We give God this, God gives us that. But of course, we know this transactional religion creates a transactional relationship with God, and often creates transactional relationships with other people as well. And most of us progressive Christians, we have long evolved beyond the shallow faith of prosperity, religion, and its transactional relationship with God, but what about our relationship with the church? Has our relationship with the church evolved beyond transaction? It's quite common for people to think that the church is a provider of goods and services, like other businesses and organizations. Our transactional system is so pervasive that our minds can easily slip into believing that the church provides the goods and services of community and music and worship and preaching and education and spiritual formation and programming for children and youth and adults and pastoral care and opportunities for outreach to a community in need. So therefore, I give the church a donation, a payment for those goods and services, quid pro quo, tit and tat, give and take. But there are a host of problems with this transactional way of thinking. For starters, the church is not a mall or a grocery store or Amazon.com or Netflix. We don't have shoppers or consumers or subscribers. We have followers, disciples, members. The church isn't in the business of providing goods and services. The church is in the business of transforming lives. Our lives, beginning and starting with our relationships with everyone in existence, everything in the world, from God to our neighbors, to ourselves, to the community and society around us. How do you put a price tag on community? How do you put a price tag on worship? How do you put a price tag on pastoral care? How do you put a price tag on love? How do you put a price tag on a relationship with God? It's not possible. Which is why the Bible suggests a quick fix, a percentage of your income. Because there's no real way to calculate or repay the impact that God and the church can have on our lives. Our relationship to church was never meant to be transactional, but to be transformational. The real trouble of having a transactional relationship with a community of faith is what happens when it disappoints you? What happens when the music isn't good? That's pretty rare here, but what, hap- what happens when the music if the music wasn't good? What happens when the sermon steps on your toes or is a little too long? That does, that does happen. What happens if the programming isn't what you want it to be? What happens when the leaders decide to go in a direction that you're not comfortable with? Do you decrease your giving? You Stop giving altogether? You Use your giving to try to get your way? Do you blackmail the church? In 20 years as a pastor, I can testify to one thing with absolute certainty. When people have a transactional relationship to the church, it almost always leads to some form of extortion. There's no way to please everybody all of the time. People who believe the church exists to provide for their personal preferences tend to use their money as a form of power. But this lack of giving is always the symptom of a transactional relationship. A couple of weeks ago, I was walking through the mall with my daughter. She saw a pair of $300 Nike Air Jordans that she wanted. She asked me to buy them for her. And I said no. Not only did I not have $300 to spend on sneakers at the time, I didn't want her to think I was going to give her whatever she wants when she wants it. But when I said no, she tried a different strategy. She cracked a smile and said, Dad, if you really love me, <laughs> you would buy me those Nike sneakers. Oh, she went right for the jugular. And you think, it, it, you think it's not effective, but for a second, I thought thought crossed my mind. Will she? Will she think I don't love her if I don't buy her these sneakers? She almost had me. But then I said, you know that's not true. And I didn't buy the sneakers. And guess what? My daughter still loves me. When the people we love disappoint us, or are unable to fulfill our needs, we don't stop loving them. We don't stop feeding them. We don't stop caring for them. If we did, there would be no families and no friendships that lasted longer than a week. We don't give to our children or our spouses or our families and friends because of what we're going to get in return from them. We give because we love them. And the same should be true of the church which is a community of people, friends, working together for mutual transformation and for the transformation of the world. We don't give simply because the church is doing what we want, we give because we love the church and its people. The difference of the wise bridesmaids who enjoyed the wedding banquet is that they had enough oil and enough mercy and enough love and enough generosity to make it through the night, to light their way in the dark, to find a path through the unknown, and then to discover the joy of the celebration. This stewardship season, we're inviting everyone to try to move a little further, to level up, to go the next mile on the journey of generosity, to move toward transformational instead of transactional giving. To move toward giving from instead of for. To move toward giving from the love we have instead of for the love and the things we think we'll receive. My wife has a phrase she likes to use in her work with nonprofit boards all over the country. She says, There's nothing wrong with having an agenda, the only wrong agenda is a hidden agenda. Friends, I have an agenda and it's never been hidden. It's been as clear as a cloudless sky at midnight since the day I arrived at Myers Park Baptist Church. It's become rather obvious to anyone who's known me or heard me for any period of time. I have a vision for this church, and I'm not ashamed to share it with you. My vision is for us to become the first interracial church in the history of Myers Park. Since the day I arrived, I can see a community of full integration in what was once a place of segregation, an act that will bring healing to this neighborhood and this city. It's an exciting vision, a thrilling vision, a biblical vision, a gospel vision, a Jesus vision, a Pentecostal vision. But it's not my vision alone. I inherited it. It's an old vision that goes back 57 years. It's our vision. It's the vision of 1966 that our forebears had when they first resolved that this church would be open to all and closed to none. And I want every single one of you to be a part of making this vision into a reality together. Now, I've been told that building an interracial church in Myers Park is not a sustainable financial strategy. I've been told it's not possible for there to be an interracial church in Myers Park. To that I say, O ye of little faith, wait and see what God can do. Some people think we're afraid of the dark. They think we're ill-prepared for midnight. They think we don't have the resources we need to make it through. They think we'll shrink in the face of the unknown. But they don't understand how much oil we have, do they? They don't understand how much oil we have. They don't understand how long we can burn or how brightly we can shine. They don't understand how much spirit we have, how much love we have, how much faith we have, how much mercy we have, how much generosity we have right here in this community of faith. There's plenty of oil in our flasks. We have enough oil to be light in the darkness, to burn like a fire all night long through the midnight hour. And you can't buy this kind of oil at a store. You can't find it on Amazon or at Harris Teeter. It comes from the creator of the universe, from a place inside of us so deep that the world cannot touch it or contain it. I believe every one of us in this place today has enough of the oil of generosity inside us to move from giving for to giving from, to move from a transactional relationship to a transformational relationship, to make our forebears' vision of an interracial church a reality right now in this place. People said Israel would never make it through the wilderness. They said a man could never rise from the grave. They said a church would never survive the Roman Empire. They said slavery would never end. They said segregation now and segregation tomorrow and segregation forever. And they said there'll never be a church in Myers Park that is truly interracial. But God said, wait and see. As people who follow the God of Israel, the God of Jesus, we know that sorrow may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. It might be midnight now, but a new dawn is coming. It might be dark right now, but a new day is coming. It might be difficult to see right now, but a new light is coming. It might be nighttime now, but morning is on the horizon. The bridegroom is coming. The wedding is coming. The banquet is coming. The party is coming. Joy is coming. Celebration is coming. Love is coming. Life is coming. An interracial community of faith is on the horizon. All we have to do to make that vision of our forebears a reality today is to give so freely and so lovingly and so sacrificially and give transformally of the oil of generosity and just see what God will do. Amen.